Okay, so as Debbie said, my name's David. Um, I'm married to the lovely Catherine, who's sat over there. She will not appreciate me pointing her out, uh, but there she is. Um, we both have been a member here at Gateway for about four and a half years now. Um, I'm originally from the best city in the world, which is Manchester, um, although my accent has softened a little bit. <laughs> um, but however, I support the best team in the world, which is Liverpool FC. Um, so as you can tell, I probably got, I got a lot of stick for that growing up. Um, this, we, I have the privilege of serving on the youth team, so Debbie's just talked about some teams. We've got the youth and kids work team, so there's guys out the back every week um, serving your children, um, and it's great, and I would recommend joining those teams as well. Um, and today, I've got the joy of exploring Exodus 32, all the way through to uh, chapter 33, verse 6 with you all. Um, so, before we delve in, I think it's good to kind of just get a bit of context of where we're at in terms of the story of Israel. Um, so they've been brought out of Israel, um, of Egypt, have been brought out of slavery. They're in the desert at the moment. God's provided them with manna each day. Um, and between chapters 25 and 31, which uh, Barney touched on last week, um, God has been giving Moses his instructions for the manufacture of the tabernacle um, and the consecration of the Aaronic priesthood, all of which has been designed to prefer... Um, designed to prepare for God's dwelling amongst his people. And that kind of leads us to where we are today in chapter 32. So this passage is a well-known passage. It's the forming of the golden calf. It's something that we all do in our, in our children's work when we're little kids. Um, and it's a well-known part of Israel's journey um, through to the promised land. And as Barney referred to it last week, it's, it's the bit sandwiched in between God uh, giving Israel his instructions regarding what they need to do, and then actually following those instructions. So, where are we? So Moses is up Mount Sinai at the moment. He's um, been receiving these instructions. And whilst he's up there, the people of Israel are basically being quite impatient. They're like, where's, where's Moses gone? And he was their leader, and he was their person between um, who connected them to God at the time. Um, and without that his leadership and guidance, they decided that they were going to do something daft. Um, and they asked Aaron to build the golden calf for them. So Aaron did it. He took all the gold um, that they had, um, the gold which they got on when they were left Egypt, and they melted it down and built the golden calf. And they began to worship it. Um, they worshipped the calf as if it was God, making sacrifices and burnt offerings to it. So God sees this whilst he's having a chat with Moses and giving him instructions and gets pretty angry about that. Uh, he asked, tells Moses to go down the mountain and sort Israel out. They've broken the second commandment um, of God by making an idol and worshipping it. And it's annoyed God so much that he, he or even talks about consuming them and says he'll make a great nation out of Moses instead. Um, but Moses go, interjects and goes, actually, God, these are your people. You were the one who brought these people out of Egypt. You were the one who provided for them and made many promises to them. If you consumed you, if you consumed them, what, what would the enemies of Israel say about God? What would Egypt say? And Moses even offered himself as a sacrifice later on in the passage before God so that the people were not consumed by him. And God actually at this point took what Moses was saying, softened his heart, and sent Moses down um, to, to sort Israel out. So Moses goes down the mountain um, and he's super angry when he sees what um, what the Israel people of Israel are doing. And as he's come down the mountain, he's got the tablets of what um, God has, so not the electronic tablets we have now, but these big stone things, um, that the uh, instructions of God have written all over them. Um, and actually, he ends up, in, in, in his anger, throwing them to the ground, and, and they break. 
And I think he gets angry at this point because he fully grasps the extent of what they've done and what Israel has done and the consequences of, of that um, worshiping, of the worshipping of the golden calf. And to me, it seems like an anger that is a just anger. It's a holy anger and one with the fear of God at the heart of it. So then Moses responds by melting down the calf, um, down to powder. He throws it into the water and makes Israel drink it. Now he then, in his anger, then says, actually, this isn't enough. Um, he then gets a group of people who've already repented are on God's side, and he orders them to go through the camp of, and go through the people of Israel, um, and end up telling them to kill those who refuse to repent of their actions of worshiping um, the golden calf and those who continue to sin. And actually, there was about 3,000 people um, on that day were killed in the end. And now, after that, the day after, Moses wakes up and goes, this might not be enough. So he goes back up the mountain to God to plead with him um, and even, as I said earlier, offered himself as a sacrifice um, if God saw fit. But God said, anyone who sinned against me will be blotted from the book. And we see that when God sends his plague. Um, and he then tells Moses to go and lead the people to the promised land, but actually God's not going to be with them. He sent an angel before Israel instead. So all of the stuff from chapters 25 through to, to where we are now, God's preparing the way for him to spend time and be present with his people, but actually God takes his time. Israel have committed this, this action, and God goes, actually, now's not the time. So he sends an angel before him himself. So there's a ton of things that we can draw from the, 34, uh, the 41 verses um, that make up what we're looking at today. But we're thinking of time. I've kind of drawn on out three things, um, three different elements that I believe are important for us to consider and reflect upon, and for some of us even look to repent of some things too. Now, if you speak to the youth, I do like my three-point sermon type thing, so that's what we're going for today. So we've got the three things are, impatience caused Israel to sin, Israel's sin has consequences, and Moses intercedes with God. So the first one we see in verses 1 to 6, impatience caused Israel to sin. So they created an idol for themselves to worship. Israel could not wait for Moses to come back from down the mountain. They, couldn't, they just couldn't do it. They thought he'd done a runner or something bad had happened to him. So they decided, well, as he's gone, the guy who is our link between us and God, um, let's create something that we'll call God and we'll worship it, something we can see with our own eyes. In doing this, Israel has almost instantaneously broken the second commandment in not worshipping idols, something they agreed to never do when they agreed to be in covenant with God, in, um, which we see in Exodus 24. Now, Israel couldn't wait. They couldn't wait to see what God had to say, so they reverted back to what they were used to when they were slaves in Egypt. They, revert, they needed to see their God. They needed to have something physical in front of them to worship. So they got the calf made for them and began to worship it, virtually doing with it what God had instructed them to do and not to do. Um, and actually, they did what he told them to do when worshipping him instead. Um, and it could also be considered that Israel's response um, to Moses not being around, is one of panic as well. A panic that they've lost their connection with God through Moses. So they make their God another God for themselves. Some commentators remark that Israel made the calf and said it was God. It was an image of him, and in building it, God's presence will be in the calf. And this is something we see in Egypt and lots of other Eastern religions who believe their deities are present in the statues that they make. And this is something Israel will have definitely seen whilst they were slaves in Egypt. Um, and so in making this calf, they may have made what they believed to be a way for them to connect to God, um, despite it being made clear to them that this is not the thing to do. Um, they've acted 
on what they understand. They've lacked faith in that Moses will return, that God has them. Something that is a very human response, I'd say. And then they've gone about things their own way in their own understanding. So Israel potentially thought they were doing the right thing in building the calf. But what they've done is create something that goes completely against the instructions that God has been giving them about how he will dwell with them. They've completely ignored them, deciding to do it their own way and not God's way. Deciding that this is how they will worship God, putting God into the same box as the other gods that they've seen worshipped by other religions. But God is bigger than a statue. He doesn't need to have a statue to be present with his people. He does, however, need the instructions he sets out to be followed because he's so holy, and that in not following the instructions, entering in his presence is fatal for Israel. The people of Israel were not in a position to be able to access God freely as we can today through what Jesus did on the cross. It required a specific person to do this on their behalf, who can atone for their sins on their behalf, and this is what God has been laying out in chapters 25 through to now. So that leads us on to point number two. Israel's sin has consequences. So what is sin? We talk about sin a lot in church. But what is it? So in the Bible, it's described as a transgression of the law of God, and that's in 1 John 3, uh, verse 4. And then it's also described as a rebellion against God, which we see in Deuteronomy 9, verse 7, and Joshua 1, 18. And what was the sin committed by Israel? Idol worship. And the consequences of Israel's sin, and I, I kind of went through it, and there's five different ones um, that I, I point out. I'm sure there's more, but um, these are the five that I... I I identified here. So God, this is number one, God was literally about to wipe them out and start again with Moses. He was that disgusted and angry with them. Number two, they missed out on the instructions written by God at the time um, because the tablets were broken. And this is something that I think sometimes we can do now. We can get into situations where we're struggling, we don't know what to do. We've got the word of God at our hands and we can ignore it and just go things our own way. And I think that's something that that they've missed out on here. They've missed out on the instructions of God, um, the people of Israel have. Number three, the big one, 3,000 of them were killed that day. 3,000 who refused to repent from, the worship, from worshipping the golden calf. And even more were killed uh, through a plague that God sent as a response of them worshipping the calf. Something we don't fully grasp or talk about um, is the wrath of God. So when we read things like this, it certainly brings about some questions as to why, why did the people have to die? But when we see it through the lens that the wages of sin is death, which is from Romans 6.23. We can see why it happened. They sinned, they refused to repent, so they died. It's a pretty cutthroat outlook on it, but it's fundamentally the consequences of sin. Number four, in making the golden calf, Israel, in effect, became a laughingstock to, to their enemies, to those around them. They'd been called to make their, the invisible God visible to the nations, but were instead doing the opposite and harming their reputation and God's reputation. And finally, number five, God refused to dwell amongst them as a result of Israel's actions, lest he consume them. And I think that's one of the biggest things here, is that actually that God was preparing a way for him to dwell amongst his people, and actually they've committed an action and gone, actually, no. He's gone, no, I'm not going to do this now. Now's not the time. That leads us on to point number three. Moses interceded for the, for the people of Israel. So we see Moses intercede for Israel on two occasions in this chapter. The first is verse 11, where he implores God, reminding him that Israel are his people. And again in verse 30 through into chapter 33, where Moses realizes that he needs to go back to God to seek further forgiveness for the people of Israel 
And in this moment, he even offers his own life, as I've said, in order to, for God to forgive the people's sins. So the first occasion is verse 11. And that really throws me. I mean, Moses is in God's presence. He's in this holy place with God. And he's in effect stood up to God. And I don't think I could do that myself. But um, he's then reminded God of his promises. And I think that's something we, we can do. We can look at Scripture and see what promises God has made for us as his people. And we can go to God and say, this is what you've said. Uh, this is the promise you've made to us. And actually, Moses here refuses to take God's proposal of him starting again as the, uh, the nation of Israel through him and doing away with the guys at the bottom of the mountain. Moses had the opportunity to take this and be the founding father of Israel, to have his name known forevermore as such, but instead he implores God, reminding him that they are his people down the bottom of the mountain who he had made promises to, and in effect moving God away from the destroying the people, consuming them, to relenting and allowing Moses to return to them. And as I say, the second occasion is verse 30, through to chapter 33, when Moses goes back up the mountain, and it, Moses is interceding here, and, it, and he's, that he's offered his own life for the sins of the people of Israel. And when mulling over this, the image is something we find throughout the, the Bible of the role of the shepherd and his sheep came to mind. Moses, in effect, was the shepherd of the nation of Israel at the time. He was caring for the flock that belonged to God. The shepherd's job is to defend his flock at all costs and lead them around. In this moment, you almost get the sense that Moses has done what he can, he feels um, it's not enough, though, So, in order to protect the flock from the sins. Um, it is committed and feels his only option is to offer his life. But God says, no, they're my responsibility and I'll deal with it. You go back and guide my people, my flock, to where I'm taking you. Now, on both of these occasions, Moses is speaking to God, he's praying to God, and God answers him. So how does all that apply to us? So, like Israel, we can sometimes be impatient with God. We can create idols in our lives, and then they can be the pretty obvious ones, like the big three, um, love, money, and power. And there are also other elements, that smaller things, that sometimes we need the Holy Spirit to identify for us. And these are all things that we can tend to do um, when we don't think God is doing what he should be, uh, what we assume he will do in our lives. We can get impatient, or we can panic. We can turn to our own understanding of the situation, and we can focus on how we will fix it, taking things into our own hands. And in effect, not trusting God in the situation. So my question to us today would be, are we fully relying on God in every area of our lives? Are there areas where we're not trusting God? Do we rely on our own understanding of the situation? Now, the sin we commit still has consequences now, especially if we do not know Jesus. The consequence remains death, remains separation from God. Going back to that um, Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We read, we read the first part of this verse earlier, and ultimately separation from God is death. The opposite of eternal life is not eternal life, it's death. And when we become Christians, we no longer have to face the consequences of death or separation from God. However, there still remains continued consequences of us sinning. When Christians continue in living in sinful patterns of behaviour, we become hard-hearted to the things of God. We can miss out on what God has for us and what his best is for us. John 10.10 10 says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I, come, I came that they may have life and live it abundantly, and have it abundantly. In continuing to sin, in living in sinful patterns, we just don't get to experience the fully the life in its abundance in relationship to God that he has called for us and what he has planned for us. 
And not only this, it also impacts on our effectiveness as witnesses to those who are not yet believers and also in our prayers. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have answered. So as believers, we need to be aware of the sin in our lives, striving to do away with it through the help of the Holy Spirit and also of our brother, with our help from our brothers and sisters. Who we, and we are called to confess our sin to one another. And that's something that I would really encourage. If you're in a position where you're like, I've got this sin, I don't, don't really know what to do with it, and this thing's happening, speak to one of your brothers and sisters and confess it and ask for support from them. And then the final bit through, from, taken from where Moses intercedes with God, we, he interceded for the people of Israel when God be, became angry with them. He spoke with God about the situation of others. We can do the same. Are we interceding for the lives of, of those around us, for those who believe and don't believe? When praying, are our prayer lives centred around our own needs or are they centred on the needs of others? And I'm not saying it's bad to pray for our own needs, but are we ensuring that we are praying for others as well? And we've had two great examples today from, with Dave and Rose and Graham and Sue about how the, the, the people, the saints, have got around them and prayed for them um, and how that's just been massively powerful for them guys. And actually, I, I can say from my own experience, when I've had rough times and I've reached out um, for people to pray for me, um, and it's happened, and I've just changed. So the power of prayer is massive, and it is a real thing. So if you don't know where to start with that, though, you can simply ask if there is anything um, that you can ask others if there's anything that they that you can be praying for them, or come up with a list of people who don't yet know Jesus, um, and begin praying for them to know Him. Start in the small, and Jesus will grow it. So to summarise, Israel became impatient and panicked resulting in them taking things into their own hands and not trusting God in the situation. And we can do the same, and we do do the same. Uh, you're not human if you don't. Uh, there are consequences to sin, and we need to look at our, out for sin in our lives and seek support for battling this from the Holy Spirit and from our brothers and sisters. And just like Moses intercedes for the people of Israel uh, with God, so can we for those around us.